Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and uh, it's a privilege to have the opportunity to open up the Word of God with you this morning and to look at this parable. Uh, we're in a series on Jesus' parables over the summer. We've been looking at these stories that Jesus told, and what we've seen as we've unpacked these stories is that Jesus has this way of weaving together these very simple tales with so much depth and so much, so much nuance, um, and we've called them stories of, of comfort and conviction because the stories bring a punch to our gut and at the same time embrace us in kind of a warm hug. They, they make us feel the sense of uh, opening up our eyes to uncomfortable truths that maybe we don't want to see and at the same time helping us see that those truths are good and for our good. And this story um, is no different. And so as we look at it this morning, I think we're going to see some really interesting things. Uh, so much of what Jesus taught was really, really radical in his day. So much of what Jesus had to say when he came and started preaching, people heard him and so much of it cut so hard against the grain of their culture. Of everything that they were taught and were raised to believe that Jesus came in and he said things that just blew that all up. And, and we look at it now, and 2,000 years later, we read Jesus' words, and a lot of times what we see when we read that, we just kind of nod our heads like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. That's become to us sort of normal. That we hear like, for example, what's often referred to as the golden rule, that we should treat others in the way that we would wish to be treated. And we say, well, of course, that just makes sense. But that was totally radical and totally different. Jesus talked a lot about caring for those who were weaker, caring for those who were poor. And we have that sort of sense of like, yeah, of course, we should care for those who are, who are not as well off as us. Those who are vulnerable need our concern. But that was not the way his world functioned. However, there are still some things that Jesus taught that strike us as just off. As much as Jesus' teaching in Christianity has infiltrated or has changed or has transformed our world and the way we think and the way we live, there are still some things that God says, that Jesus says, that go against the way we naturally are inclined to live, to function, to believe. And that makes sense if you think about it. Because if there is a God who is separate from us, who is above us, who knows everything, and we're not that God, we're not him, then naturally there's going to be something or some things about him that are going to be different from us. Right? If we were naturally inclined to do everything and see everything and believe everything the way God does, then we would be like God. And we're just not. This parable, I, I believe, kind of falls into this second category. It's, it's pretty simple and straightforward what Jesus is saying, but there's a part of it. As we read about these different workers and, and how they react and what the master does, there's a part of it that it's really easy for me to empathize with the workers who get really upset in this story. It's really easy for me to push back against what Jesus is trying to teach here. So here's kind of the, the foundation that we have to start with. In a little bit, 
the message that Jesus is bringing with this parable. When we come to God and we come to Scripture with our values and our view and our internal sense of what's right and wrong, and we do, we have to, that's just how we are. It would be it would be silly, it would be false, it would be disingenuous to say that we all come like as blank slates. Just, God, whatever you say, I'm just going to hear it. Like, we all have our own experiences and our own thoughts and our own opinions and feelings and all of that. That's true. But when we come to Scripture, and with all of that in our minds and in our hearts and in our background, we come up against something that is difficult, something that challenges us, something that pushes against the way we believe the world should work. How do we respond? What is our way of handling and dealing with those parts of the scripture, what Jesus teaches that go against what seems most natural and most right to us? Usually what we try to do is we we come to scripture, we come to church, we listen to teaching, we look at Jesus, and we ask them to affirm our values, right? Right? I believe these things are true. This is what I hold to be important. Please show me how right I am. Right? I have this mindset, and it falls within this spectrum of belief. Where in Scripture does it teach that I'm right? And that's what I want to find. The problem is, again, we're not God. God talked about this. In Isaiah chapter 55, this is God speaks through a prophet, the prophet Isaiah, speaking to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, God says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I am so far beyond you, and above you, and separate from you. We just don't think the same. We just don't view the world in the same way. And if you're coming and if you're looking for me to say what you already believe, for me to affirm that, yes, you are correct, keep doing that, keep believing that, it's, I'm sorry. It's, not, it's just not going to work. So the question is not whether we will always agree with God. The question is, how do we respond? How do we respond when our intuition Our values conflict with what we see and hear from God in Scripture. So here we go. I'm going to look at this story together, and maybe that's, (laughs) I hope I'm not over-exaggerating the setup, but I just want us to come into this with the idea that, honestly, I believe most of us will push back, should push back against this story, because it is, and and, and I I don't want to play this down, This is a story that is not fair. And it's not a story about Jesus trying to make things fair that are unfair. This is a story about Jesus saying that God is not fair. And that's a good thing. Let's look at the story together. Uh, Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is speaking and he tells the story and he says, For the kingdom of heaven... So many of the parables start out with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and it's important, and in this context, it's important for us to notice that he's saying, this is how things work with God. Look, the the kingdom on earth, the culture you live in is not like this. 
This is what God's kingdom is like. This is what, in this case, God's economy is like. This is what God's employment is like. This is how it works with God. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This was common practice in Jesus' day. Um, people would have understood that when, when there was a rich landowner, um, such as this master of the house, they would go out and in the marketplace, in the morning, eligible workers would be there ready to work, ready to be hired for a day. And so he goes out and he picks, uh, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Look, I mean, this is so normal and makes sense to us, right? It's, it's, it's the hiring process. He goes out, he negotiates, they sign the contract. I mean, it's verbal, but whatever. He says, it's a denarius. They're all like, a denarius, that sounds good. We'll go, we'll work. And going out about the third hour, now this is where this gets interesting. All that is normal. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So a couple of things that as Jesus is telling this story would have seemed a bit, maybe a bit off, and even more so as the story goes on. Normally, the way this would work is the master would go out, he knew how many laborers he needed, and he would hire them all in the morning. And they agreed to a wage, and, and that's what they would do. But in this story, the master goes back out a second time. Now you could speculate, well, maybe as the work began, he realized he didn't have enough workers, and so he's going back out. But then it's also interesting that as he hires the second group of workers, they don't agree on payment. The first workers, it says, he agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. The second group, he says, whatever is right, I will give you. So he's hiring these guys in without any promise of, of what the specific payment will be. I would kind of think that seems a bit strange on the workers' part. The first group knew going in what they were going to be paid. The second group, and again, as it says uh, in verse 5 and on, so they went going out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So these other groups that he's hiring in are getting hired without any idea of what they're going to be paid. Now, to me, that seems a bit strange. But here's something that I think is important to understand. There's a... An, not too subtle undertone here to this. Why are these guys still in the marketplace? So the way this works is everybody goes out, everybody who needs day laborers goes out in the morning and hires who they need. And who do you hire? When you're doing hiring, who do you hire when you've got a whole bunch of candidates? You hire the best candidates, right? And if you go out again later, what are you getting? You're getting the, the leftovers, the people who weren't as desirable. And if he goes out the sixth hour, he's getting people who are even less desirable, right? And the ninth hour, it's the same. And then, about the eleventh hour, this is verse six, he went out and found others standing. The eleventh hour is in, here implying this is a twelve-hour workday, this is an hour before closing time. There's not much work left to do. Everyone who is going to be hired has been hired. These guys who are left at the 11th hour, nobody wants them. They have absolutely no value to a master. 
And he says to them, why are you standing here idle all day? Not implying that they're lazy, but rather, why haven't you been hired yet? And they said to him, because no one has hired us, meaning no one wants us. We are the least skilled, the least talented, the least desirable workers there are. And so he says to them, you go into the vineyard too. Why doesn't he negotiate a price with the other groups that he hired? I think the meaning is pretty obvious because all of them were, were grateful just to have work. They aren't going to argue about how much they're going to get paid because they understand they shouldn't even be getting hired. They have no value. They bring nothing to the table. And in the case of the guys hired at the 11th hour, they're probably not going to add too much to the job. All the work's pretty much done. And yet, he sends them into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. This is normal practice. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Which is fine. Okay. He hired them. He's giving them pay. That's all good, right? <laughs> but watch what happens. When those hired first came, they're watching. And they see how much they're being paid. And in their minds, they're like, oh, wait a second. They worked for one hour and they got a denarius. We worked for 12 hours. How much are we going to get? Let's just do the math here, right? Proportionally, the amount of work we did compared to the amount of work they did, oh my goodness, we agreed to do this for a denarius. We're getting, oh, this is going to be so awesome. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. What? Like they're in line and they're watching and the other guys are getting paid and they're like, this is so awesome. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. This has been a rough day. They say later, it was hot. It was hard work. I mean, this was tough, but this is going to be so much better. We're getting a bonus. And then they get the exact same amount. And on receiving it, they did exactly what I would do and exactly what you would do. They grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us? who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Like, what is going on? This is not fair. Okay, there is no way that somebody who works less than an hour, right, by the time they got hired in and trained, and what? Well, they did nothing. Okay, they swept the floor from all the work that I did all day long. And you're giving them the same pay I'm getting. What? No, that is not right. That is not fair. And so he replies to one of them, friend, this is the master speaking, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Look, that was the contract. That was the deal. You signed up, I said I'd give you a denarius, you worked all day, I gave you a denarius. That's what we agreed on, right? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Ouch. Here's what the master's saying. You got hired in. 
you said you'd work for this much, I'm giving you this much, that's all you need to know. And what I do with anybody else, that's up to me. It's mine. And you can think it's unfair, you can say it doesn't fit, you can say you worked harder and so you should get more. But the truth is this, it's my vineyard, it's my money, these are my employees, it's up to me. And it becomes pretty apparent to us as we look at this, what's going on. This is, the master represents God. And this world is his world. And our lives belong to him. And he created all of this. And if he's the creator of all of this and he's the owner of all of this, then it's totally up to him what he does with what's in it. And when we feel in our hearts this sense that this is not fair, and when we look at the world and we say the world is not fair, and the way the world is working is not the way I would do it if I were in charge, and we look around and we say that person has this and I don't have that, and this person is getting this and I'm not getting that, and it's not right, and it's not fair, and God says to us, you know what? It's mine. And who gets to determine what's right and what's wrong? Who gets to determine how much or how little this person gets? Or what this person's life is like? Or what this person's circumstances are like? This is my world. That's the main point of this whole parable. And we'll get into kind of the specifics of it. But here's the big picture. This world is God's. And he alone is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And what he chooses to do, by definition, because of who God is, is fully just. Even when we don't see it that way. Even when I, with all of my human understanding and human knowledge and human wisdom, look at the world and say, that doesn't seem right to me, and that's not the way I would do it, that somehow, in a way that I don't understand, this is God's world. And what he does is what he knows is best. That doesn't mean that the world isn't broken. That doesn't mean that there's not evil in the world. But what it does mean is that I have no capacity and I have no right to judge whether God is being just. We don't see the world the same way God does. But that's really good news. Because if I believe that God truly is who he says he is, that he really knows everything, and that he's really in some way that I don't fully comprehend perfect, then the truth is, if the world went the way I believe the world should work all the time, I would screw everything up. We do not see the world the same way God sees the world. But that's actually a good thing. Just from this parable, I'm going to spend a little bit of time and look at two specific ways that God sees the world differently than we do. And it's really, really actually very good 
news. On the surface, it feels wrong. It feels unfair. It's just not right. But God's view is different from our view, and his view is actually better. Number one, God does not call who we would call. God doesn't choose people the way we choose people. Look at this story again. The workers that are hired later, we said this already, they were only available because they were the less desirable workers. They were the ones that everybody else passed over in the marketplace. The ones all the other masters were done choosing who was going to work for them. These were the people who were left because they didn't measure up. And they really, honestly, this is crazy. They really weren't even needed for the job. When you're hiring people with three hours left or an hour left in the day, it's not based out of need. Everything's almost done. The master in this story hires these people, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. He uses the word himself at the end of verse 15. All of his hiring is based on his own generosity. He looks at these people. He goes into the marketplace. He sees these people standing around, and he sees that they need a job. And he meets them not, he calls them not because he sees the benefit they're going to bring to him. He calls them because he knows the benefit he can be to them. This is so clearly connecting to your story. If you're a follower of God, if you've been chosen, or if you've been called by God, It's not because of who you are. God didn't love you because of how awesome you are. Because of your your ability. He didn't love you because of your talents. God didn't look down and say, I've got this plan. Who's going to be most effective in carrying out my plan? God didn't look at your resume. And decide, you are going to add so much value to this team. I want you. God doesn't call us based on our abilities. He calls us based on our need. We, the way we view the world, the way I view the world, the way we're taught and grown and, and, and what's ingrained in us. So we're naturally drawn to those who enhance our lives in some way, right? And I'm not just talking employment now. I'm talking relationships, friendships, your circle, who you interact with on a regular basis. What value do they add to your life? How are they making your life better? Are they going to contribute to your success? Are they going to make you feel better about yourself? That's how we view the world. That's how we build our team. That's how we create our circles. 
Who's going to add value? What do they bring to the table? So um, this week I was very privileged on Wednesday to celebrate uh, my 15th wedding anniversary. And uh, I have an amazing and wonderful wife. She's stuck with me for 15 years, and so often I find myself asking this question, why in the world did you marry me? Like, seriously, of all the other guys who are out there, I mean, we grew up in a small town, but there were other options, okay? (laughs) Why me? I thought, for a long time, um, I thought I knew, and I thought I understood, I thought She married me because of my sense of humor, and she thought I was just so funny. And then I come to find out she really doesn't even think I'm funny. So I'm like, I have no clue. Like, what is going on here? And the truth is just this, and here's what I found out. Joni married me because she loved me. And it wasn't because I added (laughs) anything at all of value to her life. It's just because she loved me. And there's a part of that that if you say that, it can feel a little bit like, ouch. Really? You didn't think I was like so strikingly handsome? It wasn't because you saw so much potential in me. It was none of that. But the more I think about it, and the more the years roll on, the more I recognize what really, really good news that is. And here's why. If Joni had married me because she thought I was the most attractive guy around, as I aged, and I started to look more and more like that guy on the Face app, um, (laughs) then she would have every reason to start looking for someone else. If she married me because she saw so much earning potential then if my career doesn't take off, if I get fired, if I don't make as much as what she'd been thinking, then I'm in huge trouble. If she married me because I was such a good guy, then when I mess up, when I screw up, when when her illusion of who I was crumbles, then there'd be no foundation for our relationship. But if she married me simply because she loves me, then the foundation and the commitment is not based on me. And here's what that frees me from. And please don't miss the connection. If God chose you, not because of you, if he loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are, That won't change. You will change. Who you are today is different than who you were 15 years ago, five years ago, probably for most of us six months ago. And if God chose you based on who you are, then as you change, then there's every reason to believe that his feelings towards you might change. But if God chose you based on who he is, he will never change. And his love for you will never change.
And that leads directly into the second observation from the text, which is the most obvious one, but honestly, in some ways, is even harder for me to comprehend. God does not reward what we reward. God's mercy is not based on our work. God is not watching you to see how you're going to perform. Sometimes we get this idea in our heads. God loves us. He chose us totally unconditionally. His grace for us that brought us in, that pulled us into his circle, that that started the relationship with him, that was all him. That was all his love. And now that I'm in, now it's time for me to get to work. Now I've got to earn it. Now I've got to, maybe not his love, big, general, broad statement, but his, his blessings, his rewards, what my life's going to look like now, that's up to me. And if I want my life to look the way I want my life to wor- look, then I've got to work to earn God's favor. And so where the first one, the first observation said God doesn't call us based on who we are, we also need to see that God doesn't choose us based on what we do. The workers who worked less time received the same benefit. The master's payment, and this goes against everything that I think should be true, As a teacher, when I grade, this goes against everything I believe as a teacher about grading and about rewarding student work and student behavior. If you're an employer, this goes against everything you believe about payment, compensation, and honestly, let's be honest, come on, just as people, this goes against everything we believe about the way the world should work. Even in our relationships, in our friendships, in our lives. If I work hard enough at it, I deserve more. And if you want from me benefits, then you have to earn it. And really where this all breaks down in the story is with the comparison. The problem is not how much The early workers got paid, right? They got what they had agreed to. And there's this little bit of the twist where the master, I think, is kind of playing with them because he sets them up, doesn't he? Hey, pay the later guys first. Why? So that everybody will see what they're getting. Now, is that just because he's rubbing it in? No, it's because he's trying to make a point about his goodness and his generosity. But the truth is this, and this is hard for us to to admit, and it's kind of hard to believe. As positive as a word as, as generosity is, we don't really like generosity when it applies to anyone else. Sometimes we struggle with it even when it applies to us. Right? If you've ever said something like, I'm not a charity case, 
I don't need a handout. We don't really like generosity. We like to believe that we have earned everything we have. And to tell us that anything we have is solely a gift that pushes against so much of what we value. And when the workers are comparing themselves to others, and look, here's the deal. They're right. They did work a lot harder. They're right. They were more attractive workers. They were more talented. They were hired first for a reason in this story. They put in more effort. They contributed more to the master's bottom line. Everything they're saying is true. And they got exactly what they had agreed to work for. The problem is not what they got. The problem is what everybody else got. Look, this is where this becomes dangerous for us. Those of us who are believers, those of us who believe that God chose us by his own grace, just by his mercy, that he brought us in to his family out of his love through the sacrifice of his, his son, nothing that we did on our own. And then we start looking around and comparing ourselves to others. And we start saying, but I'm better than them. And I deserve more than them. And I'm not sure, I, I, I just don't understand why they have this or that or whatever, and God's blessing them in some way and not me. That's not fair. And we don't say it out loud because it sounds awful when we say it out loud. But in our hearts, we look around and we compare ourselves. And, and, <laughs> and at the very least, we start to believe that the good things in our lives, well, we deserve those. We've worked for those. We've earned those. And if we've worked and earned the good things in our lives, and then other people have good things in their lives, and they haven't worked the way we've worked, and they haven't earned what we've earned, and it's toxic. And it poisons our relationships with other believers. It disables us from sharing the good news of Jesus with others if we don't think they're worthy. It hampers our relationship with God. Because now we start looking at him who's, as someone who's giving us what we deserve not someone who's blessing us in a way that we don't. And instead of relating to God with gratitude, we start relating to him with expectancy. Listen, this is the truth. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is solely and completely because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life, not you. Jesus died to take your punishment. Jesus rose again to conquer death, not you. And God chose to give you the faith to believe in that. Even your belief is a gift from God. Scripture says that. God chose to grant you mercy through Jesus' sacrifice. You add nothing to the equation. Now, that sounds harsh. 
So don't miss the beauty of this. It's just like what we said earlier. Because it's from God, you can't screw it up. Just like his nature is never going to change, even though you do, even when you try and fail, his love for you doesn't waver based on what you do. God's love is not based on who you are, and it's not based on what you do. When we believe that it is, when we get the mindset that what I do earns what I have and how I live, then we're constantly locked into that cycle of performing, I've got to do the right thing, and pretending. I know I'm not doing the right thing, but maybe if everybody else thinks I am, then it'll be okay. And that cycle of performing and pretending is murder. It will wear you down. It will rob you of joy. It destroys your relationship with God. It puts you constantly in conflict with everybody else. Because what are you trying to do? Work harder. Be better. I know I can't be perfect, but I can be better than them. And how can you have any kind of kind, loving, life-giving relationship with somebody you're constantly trying to be better than? But God's love for us is not based on our performance, and that should free us from that treadmill of constantly performing and pretending. We don't have to earn God's love. We just respond to the mercy that he's already given us. So as we wrap this up, I just want to give you two ways that we can respond to this truth. That God loves us. He doesn't see people the way we see people. He doesn't call who we would call. He doesn't reward what we would reward. And we don't have to perform, and we don't have to be somebody we're not to earn God's love. How do we respond to that? Number one, two just real simple responses. First, we just need to answer the call of the master. For some of us, for some of you this morning, you've never believed that this is true. That you have had in your mind your entire life the idea that in order for you to have peace with God, in order to you, for you to have joy, in order to, for you to have forgiveness for everything that you've done wrong in your life, that you have to do something. That you have to be someone. And you have lived a life of constantly trying to earn God's favor. God's call to you this morning is simply this. Just believe in his mercy. Just trust in what Jesus has done for you. Jesus already took all of the punishment you deserve on himself. It's done. It's finished. It's taken care of. Believe that. Trust in that. Rest in that. In this story, the master goes out and he calls people in. Not the people we would call, and not because of who they are, but because of who he is. But they all do have one thing in common. They all respond to his call. Every single one of them, it says, they followed him. 
They heard his call, and whether they recognized or not how unworthy they were, they answered his call. So the first thing that we can do in response is to answer his call. To believe what he's saying is true and to follow him. And then number two, let's celebrate his generosity. (laughs) The last line from the master, do you begrudge my generosity? When (laughs) When we are made aware of the goodness the graciousness, the mercy of God. What does that bring up in our hearts? Here's the crazy thing. When it's, when it's us, it fills us with this sense of awe, this sense of wonder, this sense of gratitude that we, knowing how bad we are, are loved by a God who is so merciful, so gracious, When we see it in others, we tend to kind of, uh, just don't know about that guy. Let's celebrate God's generosity. You know what I love about this story? You know my favorite thing about this parable? Because I see how often I put myself in the category of one of the early hired workers. How often I think that I've got things so much more figured out, that I'm so much more mature. That God should be blessing me with X, Y, or Z. And then I come to this story, and, and I just, oh my goodness, that's me. And it's ugly. And it's so shameful. Those prideful, arrogant workers. And that's me. You know what I love about this story? Those guys got paid too. God's grace extends to all. And whether your sin is running really, really far from God, like living this hedonistic, atheistic, I'm just going to do whatever feels good. If that's you, or if you're the exact opposite, and your sin is, I'm going to do everything that I think makes me look good, and God owes me, if that's your sin, it doesn't matter. God loves both. And his mercy is available to both. And his generosity, whether you've been the first one hired or the last, His generosity is the same. I love that. God's grace and God's mercy is unstoppable. The worker is grumbling. The master doesn't go, all right, give me back the denarius, come on. I'm not, this might shock you, I'm not as gracious and as merciful as God. So there's those times when I'm giving one of my kids, you know, some like dessert and they're like, oh, it's got that on it. And I'm like, okay, fine. You don't get it. You're going to complain? No. That's not God. That's not God. A story like this holds a mirror up to the ugliness in my own heart. How often I believe I'm better, that I deserve what I have. But just like so many of Jesus' stories, it's that, it's that punch to the gut But then he pulls me in and he reminds me, you're loved too. And you receive my mercy as well. Even as Jesus calls us to a better way of living, even as Jesus calls us to a better way of seeing the world around us, he never stops 
Let's take some time to pray. We'll have some reflection questions on the screen, and then we're going to share communion together. Heavenly Father, God, your mercy extends beyond my comprehension. God, every time I think I've got you figured out, I'm struck again by just how different you are from me. How unlike you I truly am. And I am so grateful for that. God, thank you for who you are. Thank thank you for, for how righteous you are, how just you are, how loving you are, how merciful you are. Thank you. Please transform my eyes to see the world the way you do. Please shape my heart to believe what you say is true, not what I want to think is true. Please grow in me a desire to conform my life to your will, not to try to manipulate you to follow my will. God, please again, as we are convicted by your words, let us fall on your grace and your mercy. In the name of your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ.